Welcome to Dreaming of Home. I'm Gemma Rolls-Bentley, host of this new podcast series launched in conjunction with a group show I curated at the Leslie Lohman Museum of Art in New York City that springboards from Catherine Opie's artwork, Self-Portrait Cutting. The photo, taken in 1993, depicts Kathy Opie from behind, a childlike scene of two lesbians holding hands next to a house under the clouds has been cut into her back. The exhibition features 20 of today's most groundbreaking artists, reflecting on the rapid and tumultuous shifts experienced by LGBTQIA communities in the 30 years since Kathy's photograph. In the upcoming episodes, I am joined in the search for home by artists from the exhibition and Leslie Lohman Museum art workers as we explore queer people's hope for a happy, healthy future and the restrictions imposed by wider society on our dreams, our relationships, our families and our bodies. Today, I'm joined by two artists that I love dearly and I couldn't be more excited. Clifford Prince King is an artist living and working in New York and Los Angeles. He documents his intimate relationships in traditional everyday settings that speak on his experiences as a queer black man. In these instances, communion begins to morph into an offering of memory. It is how he honours and celebrates the reality of layered personhood. Within Clifford's images are nods to the beyond. Shared offerings to the past manifest in codes hidden in plain sight, known only to those who sit within a shared place of knowledge. Rini Matic is a London-based artist and writer whose practice spans across photography, film and sculpture, converging in a meeting place they describe as rudeness and evidencing and honouring of the in-between. Rini draws inspiration from dance and music movements such as Northern Soul, Scar and Two-Tone, as a tool to delve into the complex relationship between West Indian and white working class culture in Britain, whilst privileging queering intimacies, partnerships and pleasure as modes of survival. Welcome to the show, both of you. Hello. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for having us, Jam. Thanks for being here. I'm so so happy that you're both doing this with me. And I'm just so happy that you're both in the exhibition and that you had a chance to meet each other at the opening as well. I think we're going to have a great conversation. Yeah, it was so fun. We had such a fun like few few days together celebrating the opening and it was really nice to meet people. So many people from London. <laughs> it was, was a really real exciting. London takeover that week. Yeah, it was. It was exciting to see how kind of excited people were about the show so many people made the trip and so many people came out for it we definitely maximized those few days I'm going to just share a little bit about the work that we have from both of you in the show to start us off so Clifford we've got one really large photographic print of yours called where the seed falls and it depicts two extremely beautiful men standing in front of a couch. When I when I first saw it, I thought that they were like folding a sheet together. But when we discussed that work, you very kindly explained to me that they're actually holding a cum rag. Oh, slay. Like they're, they're yeah. both like simultaneously wiping off their semen after like an exchange. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, 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 it looks more graceful than it sounds. I think a camrag is extremely graceful. <laughs> yeah, and it speaks to that bit in the intro where we mentioned, where it mentions that, you know, you're kind of looking at coding that is only visible to those in the know. 
And I was I smiled to myself when I read that bit in your intro because that's exactly what's going on in that image. Yeah, there's all these little things that queer folks experience that only we kind of know. So I, I kind of like to put those little moments, kind of like a wink to people, you know, so it kind of makes them feel like they're their like experience is being documented in some sort of way yeah i think that's gorgeous and of course like the coding has been there through our history because so much of our existence and our experiences have had to be done in secret historically as well so there is such a rich history of that visual code queer coding i also before I just go into talking about your work, Rini, I would love to just ask you both if you can just introduce your pronouns as well, which we always do. Yeah, my name is Rini Matic and my pronouns are they, them. My, my pronouns are he, him. So Rini, in the show, we have 10 photographs of yours and they range from very small, regular sized photos to pretty big ones that are like, I think, 20 by 30 inch prints. And we see scenes from parties and clubs featuring members of London's creative scene. Lots of people that I recognise in those photos. And I know from knowing you that those are the people that you really care deeply for and the people that you surround yourself with. And your work, it's pretty much always exhibited in groups in that kind of format. Um, so I wondered if you could introduce this work to us and just tell us a little bit about that display format. Yeah, so that... All of the works in the show are from a series called Flags for Countries That Don't Exist But For Bodies That Do, which has like been ongoing since 2018, which is basically kind of almost every photo I've ever taken, I suppose, um, on my 35mm cameras. And yeah, so when I display them, I kind of choose a different narrative each time. Sometimes the images cross over into different sequences, but that, you know, just goes to show, I suppose, how the bodies within the work can exist in multiple different places and times. Um, and so I play around with the narratives. And because of the theme of this specific show being home, I wanted to look at the club. Um, obviously, a lot of us queer folk talk about uh, the club as a safe space or somewhere that we've really found ourselves and learned about our queerness. There's photos from this in this selection that aren't in the club, but I guess like evoke a kind of uh, performing or dancing or like togetherness or like partying celebrating I suppose yeah I wanted to I guess put that in the context of home in this exhibition yeah and it works perfectly I think in this context and that sense of community comes through very strongly in that selection of images I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the people that appear in those photographs that are in the show I was particularly excited that there's a photo of Kai Isaiah Jamal in there because Kai actually appears on the track that is the podcast music, Tom Rasmussen's Fantasy Island Obsession. Kai is a poet, spoken word artist, as well as a model and just general, general amazing person. So it's kind of nice that there's that little connection there that Dylan, our show producer, just highlighted that connection, which I loved. Yeah, um, I, and I didn't know that when I chose the images, so it, it works really well. And also I have photographed Tom Rasmussen lots of times as well. And they're not in this series, but they, they will be at some point. Yeah, so there's, it's, it was interesting to me that you said the creative community, because I didn't even really register that everyone in the photos kind of works within the arts in some kind. Um, but yeah, there's Sin Waikin, Mia Maxwell, 
Campbell King, Nadine Ahmed and Gray Wilabinski, Bod Meller, Emily Pope, Maggie Matic. You know, all of these people who hold an incredible... Yeah, that like a, a really huge part of my life. There's an extreme amount of love that goes between us. And that is a key to this photography series that I, I, I more or less know everybody who I take photos of um, and all of the spaces in which the photos are taken. There's an essence of safety of some kind within that. And that's normally just because we're together. You know, it's not necessarily that the space is safe. I was, I'm always very lucky that my friends and family yeah give me the go ahead to image them and have that responsibility of imaging them because it's a huge one and I'm very honoured and you do it so beautifully Clifford what about the people that you photograph who do we see in your images it's a combination of friends and people that I kind of run into over time I more more so often I try not to seek out that much anymore I kind of just let people kind of come to me naturally or sometimes in the past it's been like dating apps or just people that I've kind of had like flings with or a lot of people in the community just going out and, you know, documenting people that I'm spending time with on the weekends or parties or, you know, I think it's just whomever I'm kind of surrounding myself by. And it's, it's kind of nice to look back on because then I kind of see how things maybe shift within like the community or just within myself. The more you go out, the more people you meet, the less you go out, the more you're kind of seeking to meet people. So it's it's been interesting to kind of see how it's shifted over the years. I feel like I, I tried to meet with people a few times before taking their photo, more so lately, just to kind of provide just like leave space and room for trust and just to get to know someone for a longer period of time and build a relationship depending on what my my goal is in the photograph i think in both of your work those relationships that you speak to really come through whether they're kind of the fleeting transient relationships or those like long-term relationships there's that nurturing quality to them always and that's something that I really identify with as a queer person as well and I think that's one of the reasons that you are both probably my favorite photographers I just love the work that you're making apart from Catherine Opie of course who's my other favorite queer photographer and also someone else who photographed her community and still does and that's kind of how she really made her name in in the 90s, was photographing her friends and lovers in San Francisco, like kind of really in a similar spirit to, I think, what both of you are doing. I really look up to like Nan Golding in that way. And I feel like, you know, our practices are fairly similar as far as just being present within the community and kind of, you know, running into the night with your camera and kind of seeing where the evening takes you and just documenting the time are we're going to be surrounded by the people we're surrounded by now temporarily so i think it's really sweet that we both within our practice try to highlight that and kind of keep it close to us for as long as we can with you know with imagery i think we both kind of do that i um yeah i completely agree and i think that it's like what you have in your bio this idea of an offered memory but it's mostly for ourselves you know I have I'm always like kind of truthful in that this is a 
this is really an archive for me. You know, it just is, it's, a, it's really generous that we share it, you know, as well. And it's really generous of the people that we photograph to allow us to share it too. And I've been thinking a lot recently about the culture that we live in, like such a, survey, a culture of surveillance and how quite often if something isn't imaged, then there is a risk of it ceasing to exist. And I think that Nan was quite pioneering in understanding that. You know, like, yeah, like evidence of it existing and also just making those images like with our like for ourselves. There aren't outsiders who are, you know, making these assumptions about what that might look like when we actually have the tools and the means to create that work for ourselves. So I think that's what we, we both do that really well. And, you know, it's nice to it's nice to look back onto. It's almost like our own personal yearbook. I feel like I've never pulled out a yearbook and was like, this was me. It's like, no, that wasn't really me. That was like what I was back then, which wasn't really realized. And so I, I look more toward photos I've taken of like friends and. Yeah, me too. And sometimes that can be quite painful as well to look back and to have that abundance of self and like experience. It, it's, it can be painful, but I also think it's so beautiful just to remember where you were at that time and, you know, the problems you were having, the kind of, you know, because then you just realize how fast things move and how, you know, one year can feel like the worst or the best, but then, you know, you have all this. It's almost like it like allows you to see how much time you really do have to, like, create whatever it is you want to create within this world but then but then you also see how fast time goes so it's kind of like a mind a mind trick yeah for sure it's also in the sense of time it's like that's you know the blessed thing about photography is that it allows us to live forever in some kind of way it's like time time doesn't really exist in photography you know I think something you both really share with Nan as well is the way that she really honors her subjects there's such a love through that act of photographing, whether it's the kind of people she's been in relationships with, whether it's the drag queens that she lived with, spent time with in the club. Like she kind of speaks about wanting them to see how beautiful they are in her eyes. And I really see that kind of similar act of love through both of your work as well. Definitely, I always say it does often feel like it's a thank you, an image of a person. It's like, thank you for being present with me in this moment. Here you go. You know, this is how I experienced it. Right. And in, in my experience, I feel like as a someone who's visual, like with photography, it's like not everyone has had their portrait taken by someone who considers themselves a photographer. And I think when they do see the outcome... It's almost like as if they had never seen themselves outside themselves, you know, especially within like the trans community or gender non-conforming folks. I think what I'm mainly trying to say is, you know, being seen through a lens that is like a celebration and is rooted in love. You can obviously tell when someone is incredibly comfortable in front of a camera, whether it's a friend or someone they trust. And I feel like that is so important for queer folks to be imaged by people that they genuinely feel 
safe around and connected with. And it really shows as a result, like in the photo. And I feel like that's really important. You know, even photo editors or people connecting people, I think putting people in front of the camera of people that they trust is really important. I think that's really one of the things that made Catherine Opie so pioneering in the 90s as well, is that she was photographing her friends and queer people, trans people, gender non-conforming people, but doing it in a way that was so respectful in a time when mainstream media representations of that community, you know, during the HIV AIDS crisis were not respectful. It feels like that's why those photographs are so powerful and successful. How does it feel to be exhibited alongside Catherine and her work in the show in that context? I mean, it was incredible, and especially where my work is, just around the corner. So if you stand at a certain angle, you can see Kathy's work and mine, and it's really incredible. Um, But I think mostly uh, it's a bless to know the kind of audience that Kathy brings and also that the Leslie Lohman brings. Um, Cliff was just talking about the kind of safety that uh, the people uh, that we're taking pictures of feel and that comes through. But at the same time, we only have the, in terms of the space, it was an incredible moment to have a kind of relax in terms of the audience coming to see the works because whilst we're shooting from a place of love, there's little control over who then looks after us. After we've been looking and been experiencing these beautiful people in front of us, you know, we then pass that image on to possibly being taken up again by a gaze that is, you know, problematic. And it was really nice being in that space with that amount of work that brings a kind of audience that is looking in the same way that we were originally looking, with love. Yeah, I feel feel the same way. I think that's why I think this show is so important and moving because it brought so many folks together that I didn't really, like we met there and I was introduced to a few other artists and I had met Chiffon in Los Angeles with you, Gemma, right? Yeah, I just feel like it was such a, because I don't really believe it or I don't really do a lot of artist research or like I let artists like art come to me in a way so like it feels more like a discovery versus research and so I feel like this show really like introduced me to a lot of amazing artists and like it has felt more powerful to have had that experience like together in that way yeah having every each piece felt like it was having its own personal conversation with Kathy's image which is amazing because it also really speaks to this kind of soft violence I suppose and that is important to me whilst I don't want that to be the main like like a huge narrative of my work I also think it's important while we're kind of creating such beautiful seamless imagery that there are those moments of remembering the the violence that you know runs through the lives of our community as well so having that work there was a nice kind of reminder not a nice reminder but you know like a really beautiful way of having that narrative you know also present in the space yeah and that's why I wanted to bring in 
lots of different artists who can add their own perspectives to that as well. You know, both of you really centralise black queer bodies in your work and through art history and culture more broadly, black queer perspectives have been extremely lacking. And when we have seen black queer bodies in art, it's often through a problematic voyeuristic lens like Maplethorpe. Although more recently there are, you know, some really amazing important black photographers getting overdue recognition. I'm thinking of Alvin Baltrop and Ingrid Pollard. But I wondered, just thinking about that, like, Rini, where did you look for identification when you were growing up, but also when you were thinking about photography? Yeah, I mean, I came to it at a different angle because of my love of subculture and my, you know, the images of subculture that I was really obsessed with were mostly taken by white men, such as Derek Ridges or Gavin Watson, who are kind of two. British subcultural photographers that I love and adore. And, you know, I I think really it was through the absence of self that I picked up a camera. You know, not being able to see myself in that canon was why I wanted to, I guess, insert myself and my friends and family. But, you know, you know, we're talking about, yeah, representation. And I do, as I grow as a photographer, I worry that we do rest on this idea of being represented in an image is enough you know and I don't think that it really means that you're represented necessarily politically it feels quite surface level still to me I don't know I'm like I don't know Clifford maybe we should talk about this like on another on another <laughs> at another I mean, time I mean, but I'm I mean I that kind of came a little later for me it wasn't until I was I would say like 21 22 that I I was thinking more about I was just evolving within myself and my sexuality and I at first it was I wanted to make films growing up like I wanted to be a director like make movies and I think that goal just seems so far away and so much about like school and like having a team and like, I feel like directing a film is such a group activity that I feel like I didn't have access to that. So then I just picked up a camera because I just love composition, lighting, and I just roamed around and just took pictures of friends and things. And I think it slowly became, how do I meet people who were queer and Black living in Tucson, Arizona, Portland, Oregon? And so I kind of used the camera as a as a way to make friends that I feel like I've, I've always wanted to have. But yeah, I, I totally didn't know what you mean with within like the subculture. Like, I think Tumblr, you know, we see all these photographs of, it's almost, yeah, it was Tumblr and I would say Disney Channel. Like kind of just, you know, there was zero representation of like, I could never connect with anyone on like media. It was usually, you know, just everyone looked kind of the same. And like very much not me. And so that's what kind of kept me like in a shell up until I had to just kind of do that work myself when I was in Portland in like my early 20s. And I, even, I wasn't even reading like Essex Hemphill or like Baldwin at the time either because I, I kind of missed, like I didn't have like an older gay uncle or someone to kind of show me like these queer texts or things. So I kind of eventually just kind of made my own like fantasy within my head and just started shooting it 
Yeah, I think same. I think I kind of, I don't even think I really understood that I wasn't seeing myself. You know, there was obviously like a frustration, but once I think that because my education, I wasn't the most academic person. And I always say that I kind of learned through images or like the image came first and then I would look more into what that image was a consequence of. And then I soon realized that blackness was actually, you know, started, you know, most of the things that I enjoyed off. It just, it just wasn't documented visually. And so, but yeah, TV, everything. But I'm the same as you. It was, it was a bit of an accident using a camera, but it was fucking fun. And uh, yeah, sparked some kind of cultural exchange between me and my friends and for the rest of the world, I suppose. It also puts something in front of you. Right. I love how tangible it is as well. Like, do you have like your negatives stacked somewhere? I'm looking at this big pile now and it's, I haven't done like archival work in like the last six months and I'm just, it's my goal to like sort them out and like sleeve them and everything. But it's really nice knowing that they're there like physically. Yeah, it's like <laughs> Adamu um, X talks about, you know, photography, especially the use of the dark room as how photography kind of prioritizes the visual with the use of the camera and the use of a dark room and everything else it then prioritizes like smell and mm-hmm. sound and all of the rest of it and he yeah talks about it being incredibly pleasurable from start to finish that's his goal um and if we think about photography in almost like yeah a performance sense it it does all of it i think that the key the best word was pleasure is uh, photography is like I don't know it feels very like you know you get your roles developed like everything is kind of it's kind of a risk like even with like 35 millimeter you know you're not because I don't really use a lot of like lighting material I don't know how much equipment you use when you're shooting I guess it depends on the the day or what you want to get out of it but I just love the risk of it and sometimes those risks are so beautiful and almost like intentional in a way it's just kind of like there's a surrendering to I feel like the way that we both shoot yeah I also didn't have very much money when I first started out so I would only take one picture of anything that I like that I like oh. and I've carried that you know like kind of working class scroungy <laughs> like energy yeah. through so I really you know if I'm you know I've, I've very rarely been commissioned but Recently, I was commissioned to photograph Tosh Basco for Lampoon magazine. And I literally took two rolls of film with me because I knew that I could get or whatever I got, you know, would be in this two rolls of film. I, You know, I'm just, yeah, a risk that I'm willing to take because I know that it kind of comes back to me in a really honest way. It makes a difference. I think when you like even with the photo that I have in the show, I that was like 10 shots. And it's like, if I didn't get it in those 10, like, then the photo doesn't work, you know? And it's like, you know, some things are a little blurry or I think just trusting within, like, that's the piece, you know, photo doesn't, I feel like we don't need to make it the sharp, crispy thing. Or, you know, I think the time spent, like more time talking and connecting versus even taking photos or even taking those photos in between, like... I think that that's also a big, powerful thing as well, because it's like reminding the audience that actually the image is really the least important thing about what went on. And it's almost like, 
actually you can have this but I have I had the whole experience so right. yeah and that feels pretty radical in today's culture kind of taking the focus away from the imagery but also I feel like hearing both of you speak there's something almost quite spiritual in that process as well you know just like handing it over and the results will be what they will be and in both of your work they're beautiful and they come together you know in this very kind of poetic way you both read a lot and I know from speaking to you you know, there's lots of different influences there. And Clifford, you just mentioned James Baldwin. And actually, I was recently doing, I was writing about your photograph safe space for my book. And when I was doing a bit of investigation, I realized that the book you're reading is Giovanni's room. You're sitting on the floor and you've got two friends on the bed. You're all kind of like smoking, doing each other's hair. It's such a beautiful photograph. And Rini, you've often quoted James Baldwin to me in casual conversations, so I know that you're also yeah. you're also thinking about him. But when I was putting this show together, I kept I did think about that line from Giovanni's room: "Perhaps home is not a place, but simply an irrevocable condition." And I think as queer people, that's such a kind of strong concept. There's such a like resilience and looking inward and I feel like that's something that came out a little bit there with what you were both just talking about as well it's like it's kind of it's just you and your camera you know it's can be quite scrappy so yeah I wondered what you thought about that that James Baldwin quote yeah is one that I've returned to a lot I also read a book called A Little Devil in America by someone called Hanif it's next to me I don't know how to pronounce their last name so I'm not going to butcher it but A Little Devil in America um, and in that he speaks of a country as something that you're burdened with and I think that we can talk about home in this same way you know and I guess through our images we're rec- at once recognising that, you know, we're burdened with a lot, but what do we do with that? Um, and this is what we do with that. That's the offering up, I suppose. But that obviously in itself means that it is scrappy and it is, you know, there's lots of truths to it. Um, and I think that that's why I love Baldwin because he's always been very honest in the contradiction of life, you know. <laughs> Uh, I haven't read that book that you just mentioned, but I just looked it up. Little Devil in, Amer- in America in Praise of Black Performance by Hani- uh. Hanif Abdurraqib. That's the one. I mean, I think just as queer folks, we, home is like an idea and it's a feeling versus maybe a place that's physical. I mean, I I really try to make my interior space feel as warm and cozy as possible and in the years I've always like tried to have friends come over and like have a meal and like feel you know safe and just connect on like a deeper level because you know a lot of queer folks they their meeting grounds are the club or it's you know 3 a.m you know like amazing times but also I think it's so important to have Um, time during the day or inside to where you know it's not party but yeah I think over the years I've just have been trying to create that consistency of the feeling of home and I've kind of let go of home as a physical space because things are you know as an artist you know things fluctuate so often and you know with like the world we live in obviously things cannot just like 
stay the same. And, you know, housing is always like up in the air. So I think creating a mindset to where it's more of like a mental head space as far as home and just how we approach that. It's just, it's helped me to think of it in that way a lot. Yeah, I normally ask everybody on the podcast, what is your dream of home? I feel like that's that's a pretty good answer to that question. Um, Rini, what's your dream of home? Um, well, I feel the same as Clifford in the sense that I've really been trying to let go of whatever that is, because I think once it's defined, you know, there's uh, a lot of disappointment in physical home spaces sometimes because they do fluctuate and they change and that's wonderful so it's just I guess my dream of home one that isn't fixed one that can yeah exist with me wherever I am um but I do find that question really hard actually which is you know telling I think as a black queer person that I would be confused about how to answer that question you know I think home is such a it's such a word that sounds it sounds very permanent like home but I feel like that's that's something that we've all found to not be true throughout time. Like even thinking about family members who is like are moving in like a later age, like it's just, I think it's definitely a mindset. And I guess like community driven. Yeah, it is a really, it's a, it's a dream for a reason because, because it's not necessarily something that can never be fully resolved or realized in my opinion but in the moment it's it's it can be a reality i think it's a feeling home is a feeling not like a thing i think that's beautiful i think this podcast and the show has just really demonstrated how home means something different completely different to everybody but it's interesting to hear how you two connect on that topic what is home to you, Jem? Oh, nobody has asked me that question. I've just been sitting here asking everybody else. I haven't had to do my own answer to that one. But I've thought about it a lot, obviously. I think for me, I feel like it's about something I'm building. It's There's lots of different components to this thing that I'm building, this version of home. There's my wife, my children, my friends and chosen family. There's the people that kind of nurture me, my life, my family. It's kind of about family, but not in a traditional sense, I think, for me. That's the feeling of, of home. But I feel like it's also changing a little bit through thinking about it so much. Yeah, that's it. It changes. Yeah, I think that it's just really spooky for us queer people to think of something that is so definitive. And because that isn't queer, you know, a definitive it's like contradictory. Yeah, we should be able to move and build and rebuild and break things down as much as we see fit. Which is exactly what you two are doing, which is why I love you both so much. Thank you so much for sharing so much so openly with me. It's wonderful to hear from both of you. Before we wrap up, I would just love to ask you both where people can see your work, what you have coming up. What can yeah? What can you share with us, Rini? I know you are now on permanent display in the Tate Britain in London. Youngest artist to be acquired by the Tate. <laughs> oh, that's really Thank you. That's in London, right? Yeah, that's in London. So in London at the Tate Britain, permanent thing. 
And then, yeah, I have a show that's just opened last week in New York at Chapter Gallery called Kiss Them From Me, which is actually um, the final iteration of the Flags for Countries That Don't Exist But Bodies That Do series uh, that we have on display at the Leslie Lohman as well. So there's new photographs in that. And I also just opened an installation at the Coventry Biennial um, in Coventry, which is a sound piece that I actually worked on with Tom Rasmussen, who helped me uh, write it with Globetown Records. So I actually made a voguing, we tried, we attempted to make a voguing track about the Midlands. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that's me. Clifford, what about you? Uh, I just opened a two-person show with my really good friend Ryan Patrick Kruger at Rivalry Projects in Buffalo, New York. Um, I'm actually just trying to like sit down and write lately and like write a screenplay and just focus on that and yeah, just take take some time away and like just get, I just moved to New York so I'm just trying to explore and see what that means for you know, my visual brain and all that, but just trying to stay warm this winter and keep my mental health, you know, going well and yeah. I cannot wait for a Clifford Prince King movie. Yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> Writing's hard. You'll get there. I I've no doubt. Thank you both so much. This was wonderful. Thank you. You're both amazing. Thanks, Jam. Love you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I'm so happy I got to see you all today. Hopefully in London soon. Yeah, absolutely. Or New York. This episode is brought to you by the Leslie Lohman Museum of Art. Dreaming of Home is on view until January 7th, 2024. Learn more about the show at lesliloman.org. Join us for the next episode in this series where we ask, where can we feel at home? In our skin, in each other's embrace, amongst our chosen families. Where are our queer and trans bodies safe, housed and free to be themselves? I'm Gemma rolls Bentley, and this is Dreaming of Home. Okay, everyone can stop recording now. The show music is Fantasy Island Obsession, written and performed by friend of the podcast, Tom Rasmussen, featuring Kai Isaiah Jamal.